0: And if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change.
1: Today's guest is Leah Ellis, CEO and co-founder of Sublime Systems, which is using electrochemistry rather than heat to make cement, and in doing so has a pathway to reduce the emissions footprint of cement production by 60 to 90 percent. Cement is the most abundant man-made material on Earth, with billions of tons produced each year. So far, the primary pathway to reducing its emission footprint is via point-source carbon capture. Collecting the greenhouse gases that are emitted as part of the process of breaking down limestone to make it. But those gases are diffuse, mixed in with a bunch of other stuff, which makes capturing pure greenhouse gas streams hard and expensive. And we still have the heat problem. Heating the limestone up to the point of it breaking down requires temperatures so hot that coal has been the default solution. Leia and Sublime took a totally different approach to the problem and said, hey, with renewables coming online, there's going to be an abundance of cheap grid power in the coming decades. So what if instead of heating up the limestone, we figured out ways to use chemistry to break it down, even if that requires a lot of electricity in the process? They use their backgrounds in EV battery chemistry and have invented a method that essentially turns a cement plant into an electric distributed energy resource. I love my conversation with Leia because... We got to spend a bunch of time on how climate solutions can be tackled by outsiders applying cross-functional learnings to big problems, which is exactly what she's doing. And she opened my eyes to what electrifying everything might mean at industrial scale. I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Leah, welcome to the show. Thanks Cody,
2: happy to be here.
1: So, I am going to learn so much from you today because, in my opinion, every climate tech founder is tackling the hard things, but you're tackling, like, the hard things. Incredible amounts of science, incredible amounts of real-world physicality to what you do, and an incredibly big legacy industry that you're trying to work in. And so I want to start at the top. We're going to get into your background and how you got into all this and all the stuff we always do on MCJ. But I want to start with just some basic questions because I'm guessing we all know what cement is. We see it in our daily lives all around us, but we don't really know what it is. So maybe just some basic questions to set the stage. The first is kind of an obvious one, I think, even though I don't know I could necessarily define it, is what is cement versus concrete? Because those two words get thrown about, but they're actually, I think, different things and probably important from a climate context to understand the difference.
2: Yeah, cement. Cement. In short, it's just rock glue. So I think of it like paper mache, where the glue holds all the paper together to form an object, and cement glues all the rock together to make concrete. So concrete is 90% aggregate, 10% cement. So in the real
1: world, the stuff we see around us is concrete, but cement is what makes it happen. Is that the right way to think about it?
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay. And so, and then I presume then the cement side is the carbon intensive side, the part that is 8% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, roughly.
2: That's correct. So to make cement, you have to to activate the minerals and that that's an incredibly fossil intensive and, and CO2 intensive process. It happens at very high temperatures.
1: And in terms of just the scale of the problem, hopefully that 8% number I just threw out is roughly correct, as far as we all know. And we're talking billions of tons of this stuff produced per year. I think it's the most abundant man-made material on Earth, which is kind of nuts. Like we basically are calcifying the surface of the Earth with this stuff. Maybe give us a little bit of detail of just how abundant it is, where it's produced, like what the state of the industry looks like.
2: Yeah. Like you said, we use more cement than any other material besides water. And cement is one of these weird things where it's everywhere around us. It it almost envelops us at this very moment, but it largely goes unseen. But it's such an important material and incredibly durable. So when we think of climate resilience and adaptation, it's going to mean more cement. So cement today is made in enormous fossil fuel fired kilns, Because it's such a heavy material, it's a very local market. So cement normally doesn't travel very far to get to market. So there's 100 cement kilns in the U.S. that produce our domestic supply. And these kilns are just enormous. It's staggering. So, you know, an average small cement kiln produces about 1 million tons per year. So, you know, an enormous mountain of material.
1: The main material that goes into making cement, I believe, is limestone, which I've learned from a number of other interviews I've done is the rock that is basically embedded at the bottom of the ocean, but is also found in parts of the surface rock because it's where prehistoric oceans or seas used to be. And this rock has been through the atmospheric and oceanic carbon cycle. So it's typically fairly carbon heavy rock material. It's used in agricultural process. It's used in a number of things, but it's probably biggest use case I'm guessing is in the creation of cement. Am I understanding that correctly and maybe break down as far as I understand it, the emissions involved is two things. One, heating it up enough to convert it to the materials that are needed for cement. And then two, a chemical reaction that actually breaks the carbon out of it and releases it as CO2. But Please, I'm sure you can explain this in much more detail and elegantly than I even remotely understand it.
2: (laughs) You did a great job. Yes. Calcium carbonate limestone is is a sedimentary rock and it's inert. You can't use it to make cement. It's not going to set in place. And so to activate its cementitious properties, you have to break that bond between the calcium and the CO2. And to do that in the traditional ways to heat that up, To a thousand degrees Celsius or beyond, and at that temperature, that calcium carbonate, the limestone, thermally decomposes, and you have the CO two escaping as a gas, contributes to the CO two footprint, and then you're left with calcium oxide, and that calcium oxide, otherwise known as lime, hence sublime systems. You know, try to make it, try to make it punny, so that's where the name comes from. But that lime is a fundamental part of cement that contributes so much to the carbon intensity of cement because you need calcium to make cement. Cement is a calcium silicate, and you need the reactive calcium, and it's a combination of the very high temperatures needed to make cement, so beyond 1,000 degrees Celsius, and it's a temperature at which you can't easily electrify at that temperature. It's beyond the melting point of steel, and if you were to electrify it, the radiative heating is not as effective as the convective heating you get with fossil fuel. So that's why, as you, you said in the intro, it's one of the hardest things to decarbonize because you've got the fossil emissions, which are about half depending on how old and how modern, modern your kiln is. And then the other half of the emissions is the CO2 that comes off of the rock. So the thermal process where you're relying on decomposition, you, you have to use something that breaks down, leaving a gas and a solid.
1: So not to jump to solutions, but when you hear people talk about carbon capture on a cement facility, they're talking only about that second piece, I'm guessing, which is the, the byproduct of the chemical reaction, which is the CO2 coming off, but it doesn't solve for the heat issue, which is another, I don't know if it's half and half, but it's another good chunk of the emissions footprint of cement. Am I correctly understanding that?
2: Yeah, you're right because there's it's one of these things that's almost impossible to decarbonize the traditional thermal approach without post combustion carbon capture. So be- people are trying to redesign the kilns to isolate that mineral CO2 from the fossil fuel CO2. So as you may know, 90% of the cost of post combustion carbon capture is in the purification of CO2 from a, an impure flue gas that contains a lot of other nasties. And so you can either capture the mixed stream of gases from the cement plant or capture the pure stream of gas from the mineral if you're able to isolate the mineral decomposition from the flue gas stream.
1: Got it. But you're still dealing with a lot of heat that is itself currently mostly fossil fueled in order to hit the temperatures that you need is what I understood there. And you said it's it'll melt steel at that temperature. So what is the legacy cement plant even using to generate this amount of heat? Is it itself sitting in concrete? Like What does the kiln itself look like?
2: Yeah, the kiln is massive tube so it's like a couple hundred meters long maybe a couple meters in diameter so big enough you could drive a school bus down the middle of this long tube and it's a tube that's tipped at a five degree angle and it rotates a little bit so you put your raw materials at the top they roll down as the tube is spinning and then at one end of the kiln you have this gigantic flame and I've I've actually had the privilege when visiting a cement plant to peek through a little window just under that flame and just look into this flaming tube full of molten rock. And so the cement plants are fueled largely with coal.
1: Hopefully you held your breath when you did that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I had to use a welding mask as well since it's um, extremely, extremely bright, loud, and hot. But yeah, the temperatures that today's cement is made at, about 1500 degrees Celsius, you need to use coal and you need to use specifically bituminous coal, which is this really high caloric value cement fuel to get to these very high temperatures. And then that kiln is lined with refractive bricks. So different ceramic materials to insulate the kiln from that terrific heat in the middle.
1: Wow. The coal requirement actually makes me think of straight up backyard barbecuing, which is if you want to get a really good sear on your barbecue, use charcoal. You don't use gas just because you can achieve higher heat. So that's a super obvious learning from my own life that actually helps me understand the problem here. And then there are a couple of terms that I hear thrown around with cement production, clinker centering, like help us understand just a few of these process related terms as it relates to cement production.
2: Yeah. So cement is a calcium silicate. And so most of it is calcium. And so it's about three to one calcium to silica. And so you put it in the kiln. There's two reactions that happen to make today's Portland cement. The first reaction is that decomposition of limestone, which is responsible for about 75 to 80% of cement CO2 emissions. So once that calcium oxide is formed from the carbonate, then at a higher temperature, 1500 degrees Celsius, that's when the sintering happens. So there's, at that point, the rocks form a a partial melt. And that's when you get the reaction between calcium and and silicate. It forms a phase called alite, tricalcium silicate. And this, this phase in the cement is only stable at around 1500 degrees in that partial melt phase. So that's why you have to get to those very very high temperatures if you're going to make portland cement.
1: Got it. So sintering is just basically the the scientific word for melting rock.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's many many ways you can melt things in scientific terms, but yes, yeah, sintering the calcium silicates together in that step with that partial melt the flux. And then the next step is you want to freeze that alite phase. So it's only thermodynamically stable at this very high temperature. But if you quench it, so drop it out of the kiln really quickly, you can freeze it in that form. And so that clinker is a little ball of cement that literally goes clink and it's like a little ball of this semi-molten material that falls out of the kiln and is quickly quenched and then ground and that forms Portland cement. And Portland cement was actually invented by accident about 200 years ago in England. Um, And the the secret behind Portland cement is the chemistry. So that ratio between the calcium and silicates and also this obscenely high temperature. So someone just happened to have rocks that had that right chemistry and they heated it extra hot. And what they got out of it was a cement that could set really quickly and get really high early strengths.
1: And are there other, are we hear the phrase Portland cement, are there other forms of cement beyond Portland cement? Or is Portland just the methodology that ended up winning the day, essentially?
2: Yeah, Portland cement is what we've been using for the past 150 years. And in some senses, it is a one size fits all, or it has been, especially in in the US, a one size fits all type of cement but it's not the only rock glue around so humans have been gluing rocks in, in one way or another for millennia so there's there's roman cement which is called a pozzolanic cement which is one part volcanic ash and then one part lime calcium oxide and so you mix those together and that also forms a calcium silicate with similar hardened properties to portland cement then you also have geopolymer cements that are sodium, aluminum, calcium silicates. So just different chemistries, but it's usually, usually always a calcium silicate that forms that really insoluble hard rock glue that, that you need to hold up a building.
1: Fantastic. Thank you for humoring me with all of the just (laughs) level setting questions. But these are, you know, as I've talked to different entrepreneurs, people working in the decarbonization of cement space, I feel like I never have had a whole picture of how all of these factors lay into at least the current legacy system. So let's talk about you. So, You don't have a cement background. You didn't spend your childhood running around kilns looking down at at molten rock, as far as (laughs) I understand it. You have a background in EV batteries and electrochemistry, and your co founder has founded many companies in and around that space as well, many successful companies. And so, maybe talk about your background, your journey, how the two of you met, and I'm going to give a spoiler alert, which is my favorite part of this story is I think so much about working on climate change requires cross-disciplinary learning and how you have taken what you learned in the chemistry of EV batteries and are applying it to this problem of cement decarbonization.
2: Yeah, that's my favorite part of the story, too. (laughs) So I'm from Halifax, Nova Scotia, so I'm a dual U.S.-Canadian citizen grew up caring deeply about the climate, um, as probably many of your listeners. So it just killed me growing up that, you know, we're etching away at the surface of the planet that we live on and impacting all of these other creatures and life forms that, you know, we're here to protect. Um, I did a degree in chemistry because it's just, I've always had a great sense of adventure too. And, And chemistry in my mind is like, you know, the frontier of the unknown. And there's so much that you can do. It's like a real, real creative tools that what I live for and what I work for is that light bulb moment when you discover something and you just put two and two together in a way that's never been done before. So that's what drew me to chemistry.
1: Leah, I haven't heard someone just have that much passion about chemistry since like watching (laughs) Walter White on Breaking Bad. So that's kind of (laughs) awesome.
2: Yeah, I, I love chemistry. And, uh, yeah, and I fell into the orbit of a group of electrochemists at the university in my hometown. So Dalhousie University, there's a really strong group of electrochemists that are really powerful inventors. And that's what makes me so passionate about chemistry is, is in inventing stuff. So I started to strengthen the invention muscle. And what I was doing in the battery world was quite different from the method and style of inventing that I experienced at MIT. So I was working with a a battery group that was, you know, a patent factory. And so our IP went first to 3M and then our contract switched and we started developing IP for Tesla. And, you know, it was very grounded IP development. So we were grounded in batteries and just pushing the edge of the known and improving on the energy density lifetime of lithium-ion batteries. After my PhD, I didn't want to go into academia. I think that's a bit of a pyramid scheme where you're just teaching kids to be profs and you're not teaching them to do cool stuff. I want to do something before going back to teaching and returning returning the favor that my professors have given me. So, And I also didn't want to work in industry. I just wasn't inspired to do that. So I, I hit snooze, so to speak. I won a Canadian government fellowship is a Banting Postdoctoral Fellowship actually funded by another inventor? So Sir Frederick Banting was the inventor of insulin, and this is his his family fortune. So using this money, I could go anywhere in the world, study with anyone for two years on anything, and it was almost no strings attached, which was kind of the beauty of what allowed Sublime to happen. So of course, I took that money and I, I came to MIT to work with Yet Ming Chang. And he's just a prolific inventor, not only a very strong scientist, also with a strong sense of adventure and what if always yes-anding things and only working on, on science that solves a problem, especially a, a climate problem. So, and yeah, I think that's rare. I don't think a lot of professors really start with the, <laughs> that framework of like, how do I do something useful? How am I going to do something that matters and so when we first met, of course, he's super busy. At that point, he just spun out Form Energy, grid energy storage company. And so this was in 2018, a year after he'd spun out Form Energy. And we started with the tagline of electrochemical cement.
1: Just to be clear, he's also the co-founder of Desktop Metal, A123 Systems, like some of the biggest names in the battery and manufacturing space out there, right? Like it's pretty incredible.
2: He's a legend. And so Sublime is his seventh startup, and five of the previous six have been gone on to be wildly successful and, and impactful. So yeah, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, so Form Energy was founded knowing that the world is electrifying. We have to get to net zero by 2050, and the grid is about 30% of global CO2 emissions. And there's a p- pretty clear path to decarbonization there with renewable energy, but those sources of energy are intermittent. So the tagline that then we worked backwards with was how do we use intermittent energy to make cement? And so the intermittency means that we wanted to do this at ambient temperature so that you could be very responsive to the grid. So you can ramp up, ramp down in a way that you can't do with a thermal process that requires pretty constant input of energy and heat.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, like attempts up to this point to think about electrifying cement process were thought about how do you use electricity to generate the heat requirement, which was generally not possible to do for the reasons you mentioned around the melting point of steel, etc. Is that generally correct?
2: Yeah. So it's it's just very difficult to electrify at the temperatures you need to calcine and, and then to make cement. So. We just wanted to use our battery toolbox to just see where we could go. So it was, it was very different from the type of science that I was used to doing in the battery fields. Instead of pushing the edge of what was known, we were starting from like, frankly, a crazy idea, like electrochemical cement in 2018 really didn't belong in the same sentence, right? Like, it's very hard for a scientist to draw a line between like ceramic materials And like batteries, so it was very much a top-down approach that was a little bit uncomfortable. But you know, hey, I'm just, I'm just a recent grad from Nova Scotia, and here's Yet Ming Chang at MIT with like you know, five or six previous startups. And so, hey, I'm going to see like what I can do. I'm going to see if this works. And so we started. Started first by reading Wikipedia articles, like just what is cement, <laughs> you know, like how you started, how you started this podcast.
1: Good. Hopefully, our first fifteen minutes of the recording can save people that amount of time in the future.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can go to step two. So after Wikipedia, is like getting into textbooks and then getting into like real scientific articles and start piecing things together, and you know it. It came together over time and it still continues to be refined, our approach to making cement. And maybe if there's one thing that I'd want to pass on to your listeners is that you don't have to be an expert to be an inventor. I think it takes something else. And I almost feel like maybe you've heard me be cynical up till now about academia and getting a PhD. And I am profoundly grateful for the education I've had, but I think there's something a little limiting when you're just having this formal curriculum and I, it's much more interesting when you're just exploring, exploring your interests. And what's inspiring to me is that some of the most prolific inventors of all time who've come up with the most impactful things have not been experts they're just motivated and smart, and they try really hard. And I think of the folks that invented the aluminum smelting process that we use now. Aluminum used to be more expensive than platinum because it's not naturally available, and it was two 19-year-old boys independently invented the Hall-Heroult process for aluminum smelting. Which, of course, now we drink drink Coke out of aluminum cans like emperors these days. But you know those 19-year-old boys and Thomas Edison and All the rest, they were not trained, they did not have the advantage or maybe the disadvantage of a PhD in chemistry. So I think there's a lot of power in switching disciplines and getting curious and it allows you to think outside of the box. If I'd stayed in batteries, I think it's possible but unlikely that I would have had a terrific breakthrough because all of the limitations sort of died into the wool when you become an expert. And I think that's something we overcame by stepping outside of the lines.
1: At some point, have you felt the need to bring some expertise onto the team? Or is this sort of outsider perspective continued to work well for you all?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So definitely in the inventive process, like that's when it was, It was. I think we were totally unencumbered by like, oh, you can't do that. But since then, sound checking with, The industry is so important. And as you know, we've been in stealth for a long time, um, spun out in early 2020 and have kept our heads down. And we've done that because we've been building relationships within the industry and, and talking to people, like the most respected and successful people in the industry and trying to get a vibe check on like, is this outrageous? Like, what should we be caring about? What's the real deal here? And that is just so important. I think especially as a startup, you're making really outrageous claims at times and you want to make sure that you're not offending people and you're not going to end up with dirt on your face. And that's really important, important to me. So balancing that creative freedom with, you know, a hard look at reality.
1: We're going to take a short break right now. So our partner, Yin, can share more about the MCJ membership option.
3: Hey folks, Ian here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met. Nonprofits have been established. A bunch of hiring has been done. Many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, Idea Jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show.
1: All right, back to the show. And definitely, I have a whole section where I want to talk about what you've been hearing from the incumbent industry. Before we do that, let's actually dive into what Sublime is. So you, you all brought this electrochemistry background to the problem. You kind of got up to speed on how cement works and you tried to reverse engineer it and build it in the way you know how to do things. And where did you land? (laughs) What is Sublime?
2: (laughs) What is Sublime? Great question. So Sublime goes about the cement making process in a different way. So it's not a thermal process for cracking calcium off of of something else that evaporates as a gas. It's It's an electrolytic extraction process. So we have an electrolyzer Net one electrode um, form a liquid that extracts calcium. So it's low pH and it dissolves calcium. And for that reason, we can use limestone calcium carbonate. In which case, it's just like a Mentos and Coke reaction where you put the carbonate into the Coke, which is an acid, and then it, you dissolve the calcium and it releases these bubbles of pure, cold, compressed CO2. So the carbon capture element is inherent in the process if you start with limestone.
1: And is this limestone ground or like what does it look like kind of going into your electrolyzer process? It's, it sounds like it's suspended in a liquid. Is that am I hearing that correctly?
2: Yeah, it's ground limestone. And of course, there's math you could do and you can make it faster if you grind it smaller and it would go slower if it was bigger, but it still all dissolves at that pH. So yeah, the beauty of doing it our ways, we don't have to have limestone for our process. We can extract calcium from a number of different materials. That means that we can sometimes get around having that CO2 coming off of the limestone. So sublime systems is not a carbon removal technology like so many other cement approaches to cement. It's a carbon avoidance technology. So we're avoiding the fossil fuel, we're avoiding the high temperature and doing our best to avoid the limestone as well. So that's the first electrode, pulls the calcium out of whatever rock form it's bound to inertly in nature. And then the second electrode produces an alkaline solution where the calcium precipitates and forms a a solid that goes on to make cement.
1: Is that the clinker, as we talked about earlier?
2: (laughs) Clinker has to be formed at that 1500 degrees Celsius temperature.
1: Okay, so you're skipping that whole step. Exactly. You don't utilize that at all. Okay, got
2: it. Yeah, so it's still cement. It is not clinker since we're we're going entirely at ambient temperature. And that's not to say that we couldn't make clinker from our calcium so you could hook up sublime systems to a kiln and make clinker. And you would actually lower the amount of fossil fuel that you need to use that clinker because you've done a large part of the processing in the first step. But then you'd still have to burn fossil fuel. And Sublime's mission and what gets me out of bed and what gets my team excited to come to work is that we're having a big impact on climate change and avoiding fossil fuel. So even though we could do it the way others are doing, we've decided to take another approach.
1: And so the output then of your system is what? It is a Portland cement or like, help me understand the, I guess the feedstock in and the output at the highest of levels, (laughs) just to make sure I'm, I'm gathering the process.
2: Yeah, at the highest of levels, calcium and silicate comes in to sublime process and we activate those cementitious materials. And then a calcium silicate comes out of our process, but the calcium silicate that comes out is now Reactive, So you mix it with water and it reacts and sets and hardens to form a calcium silicate-based cement with the same hardened properties as, as Portland cement. So the same compressive strength, same set time, same flow out of the truck. And so it's very important to meet the performance that people, people expect to have in the field. But it doesn't have to be Portland cement. And I think that's a myth that's largely propagated by people with vested interest in, in, in the industry and in the status quo. But the truth is that the industry has been moving away from prescriptive standards for many years. So you've seen Portland cement over the years being diluted with Ash, so, silicate, byproduct of coal fired power plants, and slag, which is a byproduct of steel making, and even grinding in limestone of cement. So, people have been trying to dilute cement with other materials for years, mostly to lower cost, but now they've realized it's a lever to lower their carbon footprint. And all of these recipes for cement, you know, thousands of recipes for cement in the past few decades have really shifted the industry away from prescriptive based standards towards
1: performance-based standards. Got it. And so just to make sure I fully understand then, so you're not outputting Portland cement, you're outputting a replacement for it, which is sublime cement, which has a lot of the same properties of Portland cement can be mixed with aggregates to create concrete and basically perform at the same level on the concrete side as a Portland cement-based concrete. And you were saying that on the Portland cement side, For the last few years, Portland cement makers haven't been making pure Portland cement anyway. They've been mixing it in with other things like byproduct of steel making and other things to both lower cost and to essentially absorb carbon and heat, I'm guessing, into the process in a way that makes the carbon emissions of their process lower. Am I understanding all those things right?
2: Yeah, so it's been largely ready-mix concrete producers, so not the cement plants, although they're starting to blend too. They're blending limestone in their cement to dilute their cement, lower their carbon footprint at the plant. But it's largely these concrete ready-mix producers who have thousands of recipes for cement with different additives and dilutives to reduce the amount of Portland cement in their mix. I guess maybe
1: let's go into that and then I, you know, we'll dive into kind of how the business side of Sublime has been playing out. But when I look at legacy cement manufacturers today, most of them have made large net zero commitments. Do they have a pathway to that? Is it mostly carbon capture on the chemistry side, but they haven't figured out the heat side yet? Or what is the, what does that pathway look like today without Sublime in the picture?
2: Yeah, all of these companies have made net zero by 2050 commitments. And I think for a a long time, they were resistive to changing. And I think they're all on board and and trying their best. And there's a tremendous amount of effort, a tremendous push. Actually, one thing I, I thought was really interesting, I heard this from the sustainability officer for Wholesome herself, is that Wholesome and cement companies are the single largest CO2 emitters on the planet in terms of like single companies like you would think it's Aramco or Exxon, but everybody else is burning their fossil fuel. They don't really have high emissions themselves, though. but cement plants. They're at the top, so they are feeling a tremendous amount of pressure, especially in, in Europe where with the cap-and-trade system. So they're working a lot on diluting the Portland cement with silicates and minerals, so there's a tremendous amount of effort with that. A tremendous amount of effort also with alternative fuels, so burning biomass, tires... Still very carbon intensive, but you can think of some circularity with the carbon there. But all of these 2050 commitments involve post combustion carbon capture and sequestration.
1: Bituminous coal, which you mentioned, is like on many firms, like no no ESG investment lists, right? They don't invest in companies that use that, which basically blacklists a lot of these existing cement processes, as far as I understand it.
2: Right. And, you know, they can switch to natural gas kilns but you know it doesn't produce as luminous a flame like you said with your your grill and so there's either way you cut it they're going to have to spend a tremendous amount of capex updating their kilns for these new alternative fuels they're going to have to rejig their supply chains for these supplementary cementitious materials And they're going to need post-combustion carbon capture. About one ton of clinker produces, rounding up a little bit, one ton of cement just to keep the numbers even. And so having a million ton per year cement plant is going to require a million ton per year carbon capture plant right next door. So that's going to double the footprint, at least double the CapEx, double the OpEx, double the price of cement cement's the most massively produced material on earth, you know, we're going to have to do something with all that CO2. It completely dwarfs our need for beer and soda.
1: <laughs> if I understood your process correctly, there is still CO2 released in the chemistry process of what you do, which means even with you reducing the heat requirement, point source carbon capture is still going to be required on sublime cement production as well. Am I understanding that correctly?
2: If we choose to use limestone.
1: Okay. And so I think the underscore I want to put there is like carbon capture in some cases, particularly point source gets a bad rep in the industry because it's mostly talked about as a way to continue to preserve fossil fuel use. But there's no human civilization without cement and concrete. And so it sounds like to some extent most pathways point toward a need to continued innovation in that space for this industry in particular. Would you generally agree with that?
2: Yeah, I would. And I actually think about the future with the story. So when I was in my PhD PhD group, you know, I was not in the story, by the way, <laughs> but there were two PhD students that were working with a piece of water chilled equipment and there was a big leak somewhere in the equipment. They were, the floor was in two inches of water they pulled out their mops and they were trying to like clean up the water with mops and you know it wasn't helping so they went and got the lab manager who yelled at them because they hadn't looked to turn off the actual leak that was like causing all of this water i think of that as like a analogy for climate change where we have a lot of co2 and we need mops so we need post combustion carbon capture we need removal but We also need avoidance, like we need technologies that just leapfrog the way things are now and just like turn off the tap. You need both. They're both urgent. But the way I think of Sublime is turning off the tap with like avoiding the fossil fuel, keeping that stuff in the ground and avoiding limestone use as much as possible as well. And so
1: let's talk about that, because we haven't talked about alternative feedstocks and inputs. And I have seen other startups that like their business is, hey, we're an alternative feedstock for cement. We're some kind of recycled material left over from the cement process or other things. And I'm curious how you view that evolving. Why have we stuck with limestone for so long? And and how realistic is it that we will move to a limestone-less cement production process?
2: So limestone is very abundant, so almost it exists everywhere. It's about 50% calcium, you know, the other 50% is CO2. But even the cement majors are moving away from using limestone in their process. So as much as they can without offsetting their calcium to silica ratios, their stoichiometry, they're moving to alternative non-calcium sources themselves. And you can see this in the roadmap. They can only use small amounts, like let's say 10% of their limestone substitute it with an, another calcium source without offsetting their ratio, but everybody's looking into it. So there's a number of different materials from demolition debris to waste materials from different industries, natural minerals that contain the right amount of calcium. So there's still a lot of options there, but it won't be it won't be like limestone where it's just everywhere, all mostly the same. It it will depend on the region, like what you can
3: use.
1: Yeah, The aha I'm having right now, Leah, is that everything about what you're saying makes it obvious that cement is a chemistry problem. And yet the crush of modernity over the last 150 years has made it a scaling problem. And so instead of innovating on the chemistry, it's been innovating on the production and scaling of the existing known processes. And we've hit our local maximum on our ability to continue to scale this and maintain the quality of life that we all have come to know and appreciate. And so it's time to rethink first principles. Like that's the kind of the clear aha I'm hearing from you and that rethinking first principles comes back to looking at the chemistry, not at the production process.
2: Yeah, totally. Like what we want in the end is like durable, low cost building materials and just work backwards from there. You don't have to work backwards from the Portland cement chemistry. Yeah, I think that's very limiting.
1: And so why now? Is there something in the development of technology broadly, maybe the fact that we've spent so much time looking at EV battery chemistries or whatnot that have enabled us to come to these realizations or was just no one asking these questions?
2: I think the big catalyst for Sublime is energy has never been so clean and so cheap. And it's both of those things that let Sublime happen. And so I think Yet Ming Cheng being being at MIT, have recently co-founded Form Energy. Like, you know, he was looking ahead of the curve and seeing like where where is this going to go? I think once you see that as 30% of the world's CO2 emissions and energy goes to zero, that these hard to abate industries like cement and steel, and currently 7 to 8% of global emissions, like that number is only going to get bigger as the easier to abate things go away. And also, when we see problems with intermittency come up on the grid, like how can you make a technology that solves that problem? So, actually, fun fact is that cement plants in the states and provinces that they exist are often the largest consumers of electricity in that region. And it's not because they're electrified, they're fossil fueled, but it's because of their crushing and grinding equipment. They already use a tremendous amount of energy and they're already used to balance demand on the grid. So in my home province of Nova Scotia, when we get a hurricane, Nova Scotia Power calls up the wholesome plant and asks them to turn off their crushers and grinders to create bandwidth. and so. You can just multiply that effect when you think of not only having electric crushing and grinding, but also an electrochemical kiln. You think of how the grid and these large electrochemical industrial processes can work together and and bring a renewable future on multiple fronts.
1: Yeah. And thinking out loud about that, I mean, today, these from the heating perspective, it's just been using their own local energy sources. They're their own little mini power plants. Right. And so. If you do away with that and you just plug them into the grid to run an electrochemistry process, now you're one of the players in the whole distributed energy resources world. You're a demand response vehicle that can be used to help us have a healthy grid overall. And so you begin playing in that grid optimization game that so many software-based startups in the smart grid space are playing in. You're just on the consumer and producer end of it as opposed to the optimization routing end of it. Am I seeing the chessboard in front of me in the right way?
2: Exactly. And just because you're so big, you don't have to fluctuate that much to make a big difference for the grid. So electrochemistry is is very rampable. You can control the current densities, but still be operating at 100% capacity factor. It's just a matter of efficiency. and So there's like calculus to do on the cost of electricity. If it's very cheap, you could ramp up perhaps be working in a less efficient regime, but it's more economical to ramp up or to ramp down, to be responsive in a a fairly quick way compared to other approaches like peaker plants.
1: We've kind of looked at how you play with the coming world of electrification. Let's take a step back and talk about, yeah, but you got to sell this into a very legacy industry. And so as you're going out, what are you hearing from legacy industry about if they were to work with sublime, what are they doing with all of their existing sunk cost infrastructure? How do they transition over to potentially working with you and and what does that look like at scale?
2: That is a great question. Of course, cement companies have trillions of dollars invested in their kilns and their the way they do things today. But, you know, things are changing, so the in the US, a lot of these plants are very old. So there's the opportunity of upgrading a a brownfield plant to a new plant. And actually, Sublime's economics are actually really good at scale. So it's almost a no-brainer if once we can demonstrate a -a first-of-a-kind plant and demonstrate what our models are telling us, like, if you had the choice to install, and this is not even including any carrots, any sticks in terms of carbon fossil fuel penalties or anything like that. It would just be a no-brainer to install a sublime system. So there's like a licensing possibility as well as we go forward. Also, there's a lot of greenfield plants to be built in places like India and Africa, which are the developing world, which will be where the floor space on Earth is going to grow the most between now and 2050.
1: And do you view the business as being all in with one business model or another, or do you think there will be multiple shades of how you scale? I guess, put more bluntly, like, are you going to be building sublime plants and going into the cement production business yourselves? Are you licensing the tech and people licensing and building it into their own factories? Or are you still sorting out that go-to-market?
2: Yeah, I remain open to any and all of the above. And I'd say right now, is sublime at the scale we're at now which is about a hundred tons per year at most we're growing the company and scaling our technology with assuming that we are going to own and operate and be a hundred or even a thousand year old company and the way we make cements we're validating our process validating our product working with people on the bleeding edge in the architecture construction engineering community and Yeah, really focus on the brand. And I think that will be really important because our cement will cost more until we can get to scale. So we're going to have to work. We're going to have to build a strong brand. We're going to have to use carbon credits. We're going to have to charge a green premium in the beginning. So we're working on the brand and and the customers and the groundswell of support that comes before the the energy transition. And once we can demonstrate at a scale of 30 to 40,000 tons per year, that's the size that a cement plant cement company would start looking so you know I had a recent conversation with a guy from wholesome uh, director there and he was pretty funny I was telling him you know about our piloting efforts and he was like oh that's cute your your nanogram pilot and I'm like well you know he's like tell me when you've got milligrams you know <laughs> so that's like how they're very stoic so it's Seeing is believing for them. And I respect that. So we're keeping our heads down for the large part and we're going to show them. And do you
1: see regulatory pressure pushing people to be willing to pay a green premium? Do you see it being ESG and stock price pressure, a little bit of everything? Have there been levers so far that you feel like are driving most of their interest in leaning into what you're doing?
2: Yeah, I would say that And as far as the green premium goes, cement is so cheap. That's really terrible in one sense, because it means we have to get to really large scales before we can compete on cost. But on the other hand, it's like we can use that to our advantage because two or three times dirt cheap is still cheap. And so the total installed cost of concrete, about 90% of that is labor. So as long as You're not doing anything that causes more people to stay longer on the job site. At the end of the day, you've charged like two or three times more for your cement. That ends up being budget dust for the owners. And those are the people that really care about sustainability and their scope three emissions. And there's a number of companies that are doing this voluntarily. And so those are the folks that we're working with through the First Movers Coalition and just individually as well as these owners that recognize that they can, they're not only buying a ton of sublime cement, they're also buying a ton of carbon neutrality and that's worth something.
1: Do you have to have some kind of methodology that verifies that sublime cement is X percent carbon neutral or carbon negative or however you're able to describe it? And I guess we also haven't asked like, where are you today? I think in terms of percentage of carbon intensity relative to legacy process. Sorry, that's two questions in one, for the record.
2: (laughs) two questions. So we're aiming for 80 to 90% reduction in CO2 emissions. And that's relative to 2022. And of course, the carbon footprint of Portland cement is going to come down as they start to use carbon removal technologies. Some of that also is beyond our control. Part of that remaining 10 to 20% is like the mining, crushing, grinding, you know, we still have to parse it, but yeah, we're working on measuring this. And of course... Going back to the seeing is believing, like, you know, it has to be measured by an external party. There has to be carbon methodology. You can't just wave your hands and, and say it's it's low carbon.
1: And are there methodologies that exist today or are those things you're having to help the regulatory bodies determine how to do?
2: Yeah, so there's a life cycle assessment to be done on the material itself and to quantify the carbon footprint that comes along. But then if you can show that Let's say you're a ready-mix concrete producer. You can show that you've switched from a material that has a carbon footprint of X to sublime cement, which has a carbon footprint of X minus Y. You can quantify that difference and sell that on the voluntary market. And there's also mechanisms to sell that in the European market as well.
1: And it seems like along with that, just for companies building other solutions in the smart grid space as a cement plant shifts potentially to using the grid to power their operations now they're all of a sudden going to need to better monitor their scope 2 emissions because they're going to need to understand where their own energy is coming from and the relative emissions cleanliness of the the grid that they're plugged into at any given moment so again it's where you see all of these climate tech pieces and parts kind of fitting together to build a new map in front of us which is really exciting i think
2: yep so what is next So, yeah, what's next is we've just closed uh, Series A and we're going to get back to work. So we've got a a lot to do. The next stretch of work ahead of us is like getting to that next scale leap. So going from hundreds of tons to tens of thousands of tons per year is our our sole, sole focus and getting to that seeing is believing point.
1: And does that involve building out more of a plant? For you all, at some point, or are you? I guess we didn't get into that. Is like, how are you producing today, and kind of what does the roadmap on the production side look like for you?
2: Yeah, so between a hundred tons and a million tons per year, it's quite a big scale leap. So there's at least one stopping point in the middle. So it's the smallest possible design to scale plant. So it's small because you don't want to waste money. It's a sub industrial scale of production. But you also want it to be big enough to be relevant, right? So to use the same equipment, and you know, my engineer hates when I say this, but you know, pinch and zoom to make it bigger, and of course, it's never as easy as that. But that's the next stopping point: is going from a continuous pilot, which we're using to develop specs for that demonstration scale plant, and then scaling that demonstration plant to up to million tons per year and beyond.
1: What kind of skill sets are you looking for to join the team over the next six months or so? Oops.
2: Loaded question. We're growing like crazy, hiring lots of scientists, lots of engineers. So, material scientists, process engineers, electrochemists, but then also on the business side, looking f- to expand the executive team, hiring a chief of staff. And there's no shortage of work to be done. So, it's got a lot to do.
1: <laughs> Leah, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing what you're up to with Sublime tackling, like I said, the hardest of hard problems, I think. And, you know, really showing how coming at a problem with an outsider's point of view and bringing those cross-disciplinary points of view are so important to climate tech and to solving some of the world's biggest problems. So I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thanks, Cody. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast.
1: At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, to bring people together, as Yen described earlier.
0: If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com and if you have guest suggestions feel free to let us know on twitter at mcjpod thanks and see you next episode